Stabbed in the back. That's how the French on Friday referred to news that Washington had brokered a secret arms deal with Australia in order to combat the rising threat of China in the South Pacific. Indeed, the betrayal of the French was felt so deeply, they actually were called their ambassador in Washington. Now, you may be thinking this morning, all right, Brad, who cares about the French, right? The hogs are 3-0. But it is truly an unprecedented move. I mean, that has not happened in over 230 years of our diplomatic relations with the French. It just highlights the, the present rift between our nation and their nation. France did, after all, help us defeat the British during the Revolutionary War. We can thank them for the Statue of Liberty. We have much to be grateful for. But friends, my point is not to give you a lesson in current events this morning. It is to say and to note that right there we see how nations will do drastic things. They'll do drastic things in order to preserve their safety. When they think their security is at risk, they will go to extraordinary means. They will form alliances. They will even renege on old alliances if and their minds, political expediency requires it. And friends, that's not just true of nations, right? Truth be told, that is actually true of individuals. That's, that's true of us as well. When we feel that our own welfare, when we feel that our own well-being is at risk, we too will be tempted to take drastic action, to do drastic things. So a student will cheat. An athlete will dope, a worker will steal, a politician might lie, a spouse might run. And in those moments when we feel that life is closing in upon us, when our circumstances become desperate, right, where we then turn for deliverance, what we look to in that moment for salvation, that says everything about what our hearts trust in, about what our own hearts believe in. So friends, I wonder what the trials, what the dangers, what the fears that you face this morning, I wonder what they reveal about your own heart, what your own heart trusts in. Because that's what I want to be thinking about this morning as we return to the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. This uh, morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23. Quite a few chapters. You can find those chapters there on page 576 if you want to grab one of the seatback Bibles uh, before you. If you don't have a Bible, just open to Isaiah 13. Uh, we're going to see this morning that, that Judah and Jerusalem find themselves in some very desperate circumstances. So for decades, there's been civil war. We've had incompetent leaders, and that has left the southern kingdom weak and vulnerable. And so with these drums of war now beating on their own borders, last week we saw how King Ahaz and how the people, what were they doing? Well, they were shaking, sort of like aspen leaves in the wind, right? They were terrified of the nations on their borders. And God called for them to be firm in their faith, to trust him and yet, what did Ahaz do? Well, Ahaz trusted more in Assyrian military might than he trusted in the strong arm of the Lord. And as we'll see, Assyria that Israel had trusted in, well, they will later turn on Assyria. And in that moment, 
Israel will now not just jump into bed with Assyria, but now will jump into bed with Egypt as well. It seems throughout the course of her trials and struggles, there are no end of suitors for whom Israel won't sleep with in order to preserve her own safety. But friend, what will be the end of all these nations, these nations that Israel turns to left and right to trust in? What's the end of all who finally look to human power, to human institutions, to human ingenuity? What's the end of them, those who look to them to rescue them and to deliver them? That's what Isaiah 13 to 23 are all about. So again, I invite you to turn there if you haven't. If you read these chapters, these 11 chapters this week, it may have been a bit bewildering because you just move from city to city, nation to nation. So just look down with me. We open chapter 13, verse 1, with an oracle about Babylon. But then by 14.1, we turn to Jacob or Israel. Then we go to 14.24, and now we're, we're thinking no longer about Jacob and Israel, but now we're thinking in 14.24 about Assyria. And then in 14.28, we move to Philistia. Then we go to Moab in 15.1. And in 17.1, we're in Damascus now. So that would have been the capital of Syria. Then in 18.1, we've moved on from Damascus, and now we're in Cush. So that would be like modern-day Sudan and parts of Ethiopia and Somalia. Then 19.1, we're in Egypt. Right, we're just giving sort of a, a world tour here, it seems. Then we're, we go back to Babylon, and then we're in Tyre. And we just, you just keep going, and it's this dizzying, even bewildering movement from city to city, country to country. But friends, I think part of that is actually intentional as you read. Because we're meant to enter into to Israel's world and to get a sense for how frenetic and how disorienting her plight is. And so as, as the progression, as you go through, it's not so much chronological, this progression of countries and places. I think it's a bit more geographical. Uh, so we look north to Babylon, and we start north in Babylon, and then we look west to Phil, uh, Philistia, and then you look east to Moab, and you look south to Egypt. And in other words, God is in effect saying, listen, all four points of the compass, all of them, are threats to Israel. And then it's going to spin around again. Everywhere that she looks, all she sees is danger and destruction. And God is going to let them, through these oracles and prophecies, he's going to give them a peek into the future. Precisely so, these very nations they're tempted to trust in and rest in and fear at the same time, well, he wants them to see a look to their end so they don't trust in human saviors. So I think the main point of these verses is simply this. Seeking deliverance in anything other than God results in destruction. I think that's what God wanted his people to understand. It's why he takes them down this tour and this route, that seeking deliverance in anything other than God results in destruction. And as we work through these, these texts, I want us to just note three particular things as we dig a little deeper. I want, I want us first to see that our dangers, like Israel's, our dangers, well, they are countless, right? They're innumerable, in other words. Our dangers are countless. But second, I want us to see as well that God's dominion is comprehensive. 
So yeah, our dangers are countless, but God's dominion, we got to know this, it is comprehensive. And therefore, thirdly, your destiny can be certain. Those are the three movements we're going to walk through. Our dangers are countless. God's dominion is comprehensive, which means your destiny, thirdly, can be certain. So first, our dangers are, are countless. They are countless. You know, one of the wonderful things about the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, is the Bible is actually a very real book that speaks to very real-world issues, things that you and I address even today. It's not merely an abstract philosophical textbook. It's not some religious musings that are disconnected entirely from reality. No, it actually deals with real people in real situations, dealing with real problems. And in that sense, the Bible has always been immensely practical. And it recognizes the problems we face. Well, they're real. They're serious. And sometimes as we look at our lives, problems seem to be everywhere we turn. And if that's how you feel, that's exactly what Judah felt. That's how Isaiah's audience, that's how they felt. They're a small, struggling kingdom, right? They're racked by civil war. They're but a shell of what they used to be under the great King David. And God, it seems, has placed them right where they are in a seemingly no-win situation. But if you think geographically, think about the position Israel's in. To her west, Philistia and the Mediterranean Sea. So you're kind of hemmed in on your west. On the east, Moab, and then just the deserts of Saudi Arabia. So hemmed in on either side in the east and on the west. So all that really leaves you is, is some room maybe in the north and the south. But of course, who's to your north? Well, you've got the northern kingdom, for which you've been at civil war for years now. And beyond them is Babylon and Assyria. So there's not a whole lot of help up north. And to the south is Egypt. Everywhere they look in danger. They define that expression of what it looks like to be caught between a rock and a hard place. That's Egypt, not Egypt. That's Israel, right where they're located. And as they're surrounded by danger, they become fearful, understandably. And I trust some of you here, many of you here will know exactly what that's like. You know, the feeling that your life is collapsing in upon you, that it's crushing you. And you, in that moment, are desperate for an escape. You're desperate for a way out. Where in those moments do you turn? To whom do you look for deliverance? Now, last week, with Assyria and their ascendancy and their, their rise, right? Israel had that decision. They could look to the Lord, they could fear him, or they could look to the might of their neighbors. And what does Israel do? Well, we saw she looks to Assyria, uh, to Syria, not Assyria, but to Syria, just directly north of them. They think Syria can help them with the problem of Assyria, bigger nation even further north. And in that, they adopt a very pragmatic kind of politics of convenient approach. Israel's like, all right, we got a problem. We're going to look to Syria to help solve our problem. How will that work out for them? Just look at chapter 17 of Isaiah. We're going to start there in chapter 17. Look at, look at verse 1. So what's the fate of the nations that Israel is resting in to help them? An oracle concerning Damascus, that's the capital of Syria. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora are deserted. I have no idea how you say that. Just run, when you don't know how to say a Bible name, just pronounce it a little bit more confidently than I did. You'll be okay. 
Cities are deserted. They will be for flocks, which will lie down, and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim. That just means Israel. And the kingdom from Damascus. And the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, so just stopping right there. Israel trusting in Syria. How does it go for Syria? Not so well. What about Israel? Will it go any better for them? Keep going, verse 4. And in that day, the glory of Jacob, Israel that means, will be brought low. The fat of his flesh will grow lean. And it shall be as when the reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears. And as when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim, gleanings will be left in it. As when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top of the highest bow, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the God of Israel. All right, so what, what's being presented here is after Assyria has its way with Syria and with Israel, Israel is going to look like an emaciated man. That's what, that's what Isaiah is saying, skin hanging from bone. She's going to look like a harvested field, right? ravaged and picked clean. She's going to look like a grove of trees that have been so thoroughly beaten and whipped that there are just a few tiny pieces of fruit left on the very highest of branches. That's all that's left. And why will that have happened? Look down to 17.10. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. Okay, so notice, why has this all happened? Isaiah said to Israel, this will happen to you because you have trusted in Syria and have forgotten your God. You did not stand firm in faith. No, you didn't. You did not look to the Lord as your rock and your refuge. Friends, isn't that, if we're honest, isn't that so easy to do to make the same mistake that Israel makes? Right, when the heat turns up, when life feels like it's spinning out of control, we in those moments can reach and can grasp for anything we think might save us and might deliver us. You know, like a, like a starved hiker, famished. And what do they do sometimes? Right? You don't, if you don't know better, or even if you do, if you're so disoriented, what you do, you'll reach for the poisoned berry, right, for the toxic mushroom. And you'll take, not realizing that very thing you think is going to save you is the very thing that's going to destroy you. That's exactly what's happening to Syria. So let me ask you, do you think it's an accident that God put Israel right in the heart of all of this turmoil? Do you think it's an accident that God dropped Israel right into the center, it seems, of like every major geopolitical crisis? I don't think it was an accident. I think God did that for a reason. Yes, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a wonderful place, that's true. But as well, 
I think the Lord intended the very vulnerability of that location to be an opportunity for his people to lean into him and to trust him and depend upon him as their rock and refuge. And yet, sadly, that's a lesson they will fail to learn time and time again. So if you've come and you feel like you've got impossible situations in life you're struggling to deal with, do you think those seemingly impossible situations, do you think those are an accident? Do you think your present crisis or maybe the next crisis that's going to come into your life, do you think that's merely a result of blind fate, right? Some strange happen happenstance? Or do you think maybe in the midst of that moment, do you think maybe God is trying to do something? Do you think maybe in that moment God is trying to expose something of your own heart? Could it be that crisis you're in is to reveal what your own heart instinctively trusts in, right? What it looks to for security, what it looks to for protection, where you run when you are most threatened, Is that what your crisis is perhaps telling you about your own heart? Because in the heat of crisis, Israel chose Damascus. They linked their own lives, they linked their welfare to a nation that could not save them and could not deliver them. And God had told them that, but yet in the moment, they didn't trust his word and they looked to the power and might of Syria. Friend, I wonder where you do the same. Where are you tempted to distrust God's word and rather look to the world for deliverance, for safety? Maybe look to the world for security. Do you maybe seek that in romantic relationships regardless of whether or not they are wise or healthy? You know, might you reason that it's better to be sort of with someone for the wrong reasons than to be alone for the right? If you can... Tell me afterwards what 80s movie that comes from. You'll get extra credit. Total side note. But friends, more seriously, maybe you seek security, right? Maybe you do that in different ways. Maybe it's not through romantic relationships. Maybe you just do it through unhealthy expectations and friendships. Maybe you look and lean on friendships to provide what only God himself can provide. Maybe you instead do it in popularity, you seek it in fame, you seek that kind of safety and security and the accolades and all the accomplishments of this world. Do you ever find yourself saying, if I just had this, this fill in the blank, all would be well? Friend, what is that thing that you think you need in your life for all to be well? And if it's not the Lord, I'm going to suggest to you it's likely a problem. Your heart is telling you something. God is helping you see something about where you wrongly place your faith and trust. Israel thought that one thing that she needed for her own security was Syria. Friend, what alliances with the world are you yourself making this morning? Have you linked yourself to any of those things I noted above or maybe to a a politician or a political party or some kind of platform or maybe it's a health regimen, right? You've linked yourself to that thinking, yeah, this thing is somehow going to meet me and, and provide for me. We see in these chapters how every single nation and every false god will come to ruin. It's as if a god, by taking them through every nation, yeah, I know you fear them all, but know what happens to them all. 
I'll go through every one. You name them, Babylon, Assyria, Damascus, they are all destined for dust. So Israel, why would you tie your fortunes to them? Why drink from a poisoned well? Why harness your cart right to a dead horse? Why would you board a sinking ship? Why would you build a home on sinking sand, right? That's, that's the message. That's what God's trying to help his people see. And yet we're slow to that message. Those things that we look to save us. God's saying they can't save you. They can't deliver you. Jump forward to chapter 22. It's that same principle at work. Look forward to chapter 22. This time it's not Israel in the northern kingdom. It's the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. And there's going to be an oracle in 22 telling of a, of a coming destruction. A destruction of Jerusalem itself, likely by Babylon. And we pick up in 22 verse 5. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen and Kerr uncovered the shield. So this is, this is the armies, right? This is their, their massing for war in all of their glory. And your, Israel's choicest valleys, were full of chariots and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem. You broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. All right, so right there, the southern kingdom and its own crisis, right? Babylon there with all their chariots and glory. And what does Israel do? They look to their weapons, to their walls, to their own water supply. That's where they focus their efforts. It seems in that moment, Israel's looking around at everything except the Lord. So if in chapter 17, we saw that, that Israel's sort of northern kingdom was tempted to look outward and, tr and place its trust outwardly, right here you're thinking of the southern kingdom and they're being presented as those who are actually looking inwardly. They're looking to themselves and trusting in themselves for deliverance. Their idol maybe was perhaps different. It was more the idol of self-sufficiency. And some of you know what that's like. You've given up on others. You think, you know, if I'm going to make something in my life, if I'm going to, if I'm going to better my position, I'm going to have to do it myself. You trust in nobody but yourself. You rely upon your own resolve, your own reason, your own efforts and abilities. And if you make it anywhere in life, you attribute your success to those things, to you, right? We even have that expression, he's a self-made man. But friend, again, is there such a thing as a self-made man or woman for that matter? Are our successes really and solely attributable to us? Or does chance or fortune or fate or whatever you want to call it have anything to do with it? Our natural abilities, our opportunities in life, are those things just accidents? Are those things we ourselves can take credit for them? Or is, is something else, is someone else at work in that? 
You know, all these oracles begin with Babylon in chapter 13. They end with Tyre in chapter 23. And if you think about Babylon, known for its might and magnificence, its power, Tyre at the end is its commercial trading center. It's known for its wealth and prosperity. In those two, between Babylon and its power and Tyre and its prosperity, you have, in a sense, the two great gods of our world. And our world is not much different than Isaiah's world. Those gods of power and prosperity. And the danger with both of those is how they feed that illusion of self-sufficiency. That illusion that we're actually in final control of what happens. And yet God will help Israel see both those nations will be destroyed. Chapter 23, verse 1. Of Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish. So that's sort of the other end of the trading, right? Tarshish on the Spanish coast. For Tyre on the east of the Mediterranean is laid waste without course or harbor. And then if you just go on and read chapter 23, it's going to document how this destruction of Tyre, this great commercial center, how it's wiped out. And as a consequence, there's like a great Wall Street crash. You know, the Egyptians have all their grain. They have no place to sell it. They can't ship it anywhere. And everything comes undone. It's sort of an explosion financially, commercially of epic proportion. And Babylon, as we're going to see, well, they come to a similar end. Point being Israel and the nations... Well, Israel was prone to look, I should say, to the nations around them, to trust them. Friend, where are you again looking outside of the Lord? If you're a Christian, where are you looking outside of the Lord? Where are you looking to the world? Where are you, what are you clinging to and holding fast to? Because we're seeing how God has a way of stripping those idols from our own hands in order that we would see their end and destruction and instead look to him. And it's his kindness that he does that in this life. It's his own way of saying, why will you trust these things that come to ruin when you can have me instead? Which brings us to our second point. Our dangers are countless, much like Israel's, But what Israel had to know and what these verses and chapters are helping them see and what we must know is that though dangers are countless, God's dominion, that is comprehensive. God's dominion, secondly, is comprehensive. So if point one is sort of the disease, point two is the antidote, right? How do we fight that temptation to run to those things of the world which cannot save or satisfy? It's to recognize that this God in every moment is in control, to recognize this God can meet us in our need, that he can do what no person or power can accomplish in our own lives, that he is in fact steering history and our own stories, our own lives towards his glorious end. And so that's why we're given these these visions of how every major power in the world that Israel can see, how they will end, so that that rug can be ripped out from underneath the feet of God's people and every false security, every false idol be stripped from them so that they would cry out to him for deliverance. You know, that scene opens, open, go back to chapter 13. Back to chapter 13. These chapters open there with Babylon. Babylon, it's the first, now we've come across Babylon in, in Isaiah 
It had been a mighty nation under Hammurabi many of centuries earlier, but at this point, it's playing second fiddle to Assyria. But in about 100 years, it won't be. That'll sack Nineveh, the, the capital of Assyria, and it's going to be Babylon that's going to take the entire southern kingdom into exile in 586 B.C. Babylon would become the largest city in the world. So it would measure about the size of Chicago today with hundreds of thousands of people. And when you're talking about the 8th century B.C., that is an enormous city. It had layers of walls, 40 feet high, so thick they would have chariot races around the walls. And again, think of the size of the city. Think of what a feat that must be. It had lavish palaces, Babylon did. Shrines to God that towered 26 stories tall. It seems the people of Babylon never learned the lesson from the Tower of Babel. It was known for its luxurious hanging gardens, one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And what will become of this glorious city? Chapter 13, verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I, this is the Lord talking, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. All right, who are these consecrated ones that we read of? Who is this host that the Lord is mustering Look down to chapter 13, verse 17. Chapter 13, 17. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes. Right? Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Persian. I am stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. In other words, you can't bribe these guys. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. So recognize right there, right out of the gate, God is prophesying how the Medes and the Persians will rise up and conquer mighty Babylon, right? This almost 200 years before it would come to pass. So God's saying through Isaiah to his people, when this happens one day, remember I told you about it first. And not only did I alert you of what would happen to Babylon, I told you from whom their destruction would come. And I predicted exactly how it would happen and who would take you. And so none of this should be a surprise to you. And I'm telling you so that when all looks lost, you can look back to this and remember me and trust me. 
Friends, these are remarkable claims Isaiah's making. Like, so if there was a futures market back then, right, we could have, like, we could, we could short Assyria, we could go long Babylon, we could make tons of money, and then we could short Babylon and go long like Cyrus, the, the Medes and the Persians, and we could make a killing and no one would expect it. Babylon is the largest city in the world. None could fathom what would happen to that great city. I mean, Tokyo, I think, is the largest city today. Something, if you take the surrounding region, like 37 million people. Imagine that massive city with all of those skyscrapers, you know, all the the stadiums from the recent Olympics. Imagine all of that, and imagine saying, yeah, you know what? It won't be very long until you can't even find it on a map. You could fly right over it, and you wouldn't see it. No evidence it was ever even there. But, you know, friends, by the time the Romans would march into this region hundreds of years later, there was no sign of Babylon, no evidence of it that it ever even existed. Nobody could have predicted this. Nobody could have seen this but the Lord, and he does. And ask yourself, how does the Lord have this kind of specific knowledge about future events? How does God foreknow everything? It's because he foreordains everything. God foreknows everything because he foreordains everything. Notice all of this is the result of his decree. It is his doing. Verse 3, chapter 13, 3. I myself, lest there be any question, I myself have commanded this. Right, The Lord of hosts, verse 4, is mustering this host up for battle. Verse 17, I, the Lord says, am stirring up the Medes. If you read all through chapter 13, that dominant pronoun is I, repeated over and over again. This is what God is doing. He is raising up the Medes, and he will be tearing down the Babylonians. Friends, that's what we speak of when we speak about God's providence. You know, just from our own statement of faith as a church, God's providence means that God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so as not in any way to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free agency and responsibility of intelligent creatures." So notice that providence is specific. It's naming nations. Even as we move on later in the book, it's naming individual people before those people even come to exist. It's that specific, and it's comprehensive, right? It covers everything. Like turn with me to chapter 14, verse 24. So we know what's going to happen to Babylon. What about present-day Assyria, the, the real threat at the moment? 14, look at verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, not suggested, not implied, not hoped, right? He has sworn, as I have planned it, so shall it be. As I have purposed it, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountaintops trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, 
and who will turn it back? As I have planned, the Lord says, as I have purposed. Chapter 19, look at Egypt in chapter 19. A nation that prided itself in its false religion and all of its resources in the Nile, all of its reason and great wisdom. And yet there's going to come a day, chapter 19, verse 16. And what do we read about that day? In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. My friends, that right there is the God of the Bible. A God who has such authority, and when he purposes it, none can stand and none can change. You know, God's not merely some interested spectator at a game. He's not like me watching, you know, the football game from afar. I'm there. I'm not even at the game, right? I'm sort of watching it on TV. And as a spectator, that's it at best, right? I can shout. I can yell. It doesn't affect. It doesn't change anything. You know, the Roman and Greek gods were a bit like that out in the distant corners of the universe. They weren't as actively involved. They couldn't change the course of all events, But neither is God just stuck on the sidelines. Neither is he a little closer to the field, but they're on the sidelines, kind of like a coach who calls plays. You know, maybe maybe you think of God as one who's, you know, he's he's got some good intelligence on the opposing team. You know, he may have a few even trick plays up his sleeve that he he can pull out in in a moment. But, you know, at the end, he's just a coach. All he can do is encourage. All he can do is support and, and maybe throw out some plays and bark some orders at the end of the day, it's up to the players, right? They got to execute if the game's going to be won. Recognize if that's your view of God, your God can't finally accomplish anything. He can't finally ensure anything. The best that God can do is to do his best. But not this God, right? The God of the Bible, as we're seeing it here, he made the game, he calls the game, he's in the game, he wins the game. That's this God. Now, that doesn't make, mean we don't make real decisions with real consequences. You know, we talked last Sunday night, if you were at the service, about, about compatibilism, this notion that our own willing, our own desires are compatible with God's willing such that we freely do what God wills that we do. And while that can be thorny sometimes to put all together, that's clearly what the Bible teaches. So when the Medes and the Persians go and sack Babylon, they did so for their own desires. They had their own purposes they were pursuing. They chose to invade, and yet behind those purposes was a bigger purpose, God himself. Because it was actually going to be that event, if you go to Ezra 1, that ensures that God would remove his people from exile. Friends, same with Jesus, those who crucified Jesus, Herod, Pontius Pilate, right? the Jews, the Romans, they chose to kill him. None were compelled against their will, and yet we read in Acts 4.28, they did what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We make real decisions according to our very real desires, and yet all of them God is helping us see are part of a bigger plan for the world. When Christians say God is sovereign, 
That's what they should mean right there. And if you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to see that you, as frightening as this God may seem at some level, as incomprehensible as he may seem to have this kind of power and authority, you desperately need this God. You need this God in your own life. I mean, if God is not sovereign like this, why do we bother to pray for anybody's salvation? If God can't break in and finally change a heart, what are we doing? We're wasting our time. Why pray for world events? Why was Ben praying as he was praying in the pastoral prayer if God can't guide the hearts of kings like streams of water in his hand? If he can't do that, why are we change, asking for God to change current events? Why do we pray for healing? Why do we pray for relationships being restored? Why do we pray for these things if God can't finally affect these things? If God isn't sovereign, friend, how do you even know the Bible that you hold in your hand? How do you know those words are actually God's words? You know, Mormons believe that God gave them their book, like just it dropped down on, on golden tablets. That's not how we understand the Bible came to us. No, numerous men over numerous centuries in numerous cultures and numerous languages wrote the Bible. So how can we have any confidence that these words are God's words? It's because he's sovereign. It's because God can work to inspire what was written such that the words of men were in fact the very words of God because he's this kind of God. How can you be confident this morning as a Christian that you're going to make it to heaven? You may feel like you're hanging like by a thread. How can you be confident in Christ you'll actually make it? We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Is that it? Just work out and hope you get there? No. Philippians 2.12 starts there. But we do so, Philippians 2.13, knowing that it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Philippians 2.13. I could just keep going. I want you to see you desperately need this God. You need him in your life. So don't give up praying. Not to this God. Don't give up praying to him. You don't pray merely because it's cathartic. The point of prayer, as many people sadly think about it, it's not to bring you into some zen-like state of meditation and consciousness and peace. That's not the point of prayer. And you don't merely pray to have your heart tuned to God's heart. I mean, there's a sense in which that's true, but you pray because through prayer, you know God changes things. That's how he works. Prayer is his... God-ordained means to bring about his God-ordained ends, which means don't give up praying for that lost, unsaved family member. Don't give up praying for that marriage on the rocks. Don't give up praying for that financial hardship, for whatever it is. Nothing's impossible with this God. Nothing's too great for him. If he can topple governments, if he can take down the greatest nations on earth and leave basically no record of them, can he not answer your most ambitious prayers? He loves to do that. He delights to show himself glorious like that. And you know what? If God doesn't grant what you desire, what we sometimes call the unanswered prayer, though there's really no such thing theologically, but if he doesn't grant what you desire, you've got to know it's not because he's unable, unless you're asking for sin, in which case God only acts according to his nature. So just don't ask for sinful things, but 
It's not because he's unable. It's certainly not because he's unloving. Though it feels that way, in those moments we look to the cross where we see God's love so clearly demonstrated for us that in the moments of humanity's greatest wickedness, right, the love of God and the Father would shine all the brighter in the sun. Now, if our prayers appear unanswered, it's because he has purposes that we cannot comprehend and we cannot understand. And as hard as it can be, they are good purposes. They are wise purposes. They are what come to us from the hand of a loving Father. And in such times, we're called to trust. You know, we're going to sing a closing hymn in a, in a little bit. And one of the lines from that hymn is his purposes, speaking of God's, will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Friends, the dangers, the fears God's people faced were countless. What they needed and what you and I need is the confidence that though those dangers are great, yet God is greater still, that nothing's too hard for him and nothing is impossible with him, which means thirdly, your destiny can be certain. The third thing and the last thing I want us to see, if this is true of God, your destiny can be certain. You know, one of the frightening things about these chapters is that God's people When they act like the nations and rebel like the nations, they become like the nations and are judged like the nations. But will Israel's failures have the last word? Friend, will your failures have the last word on your own life? Look back to 14.1. So jump back to chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 1. After prophesying of Babylon's fall, we read in 14.1, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. So right there we're seeing Israel's plight is great and yet God's not done with her. Yeah, she's jumped into bed with Assyria. Yeah, she's jumped into bed with Egypt. Inexplicably, though, God will be faithful to that faithless bride. God's not going to divorce her. God's not going to abandon her. He's going to walk into those seedy backlit streets. He's going to enter into that bedroom. He's going to grab his unfaithful bride, and he's going to pull her out of that bed, and he's going to bring her back home, home to be with him. He is a compassionate God as we read. Slow to anger, abounding in love, we read elsewhere. And he has made promises to her, and this God never fails to keep his promises. Now, no doubt Israel felt like there were times God had abandoned them. When their nation's being ravaged, right? When they're being carried off into exile, felt like God wasn't there for him or for them. God had given up on them. Listen, I'm sure some of us feel that way. You may be coming in thinking, yeah, my life, I don't know how to make sense of my life and a God who cares about me and a God who loves me. Life hasn't turned out as you hoped, maybe. It feels like maybe in life, and maybe you even feel like with Jesus, you've lost more than you've gained. You know, one of the problems, I think, is so many of us, we, we measure love by our notions of the good life. 
So if God truly loved us, we conclude, therefore, this is how he would treat us. And by that, we mean we would have a life of of some comfort, a life of some ease. We wouldn't be surrounded in every corner by difficulty, right? We would avoid at least some suffering. But friend, for God, know that good life looks very different than the way we tend to define it. For God, the good life is not just the happy life. It is a holy life that he's after. For God, the good life is not just the avoidance of suffering, but God is about advancing our own sanctification, our own growth, which itself often entails suffering. Which is why when life goes to pot, we often think something's gone wrong with God, that he's failed us some way, he's deserted us. When it's really never about his failure of us, It often has a lot more to do with our own faith. It's not really so much about how God is in that moment, just somehow deserted us, but he's trying to bring us to a place of deeper trust and dependence upon him, sort of like clay in the hands of a potter. Sometimes God knows he has to break it down in order to build it back up into something more beautiful and remarkable. And that's not just something he wishes to do. It's what he wills to do. It's what he promises to do when he promises to have a people for himself. And notice who's now a part of that promise. It's not just Israel. We read of sojourners. Sojourners. God is now invited, it seems, into his presence. Additional guests. We're going to see that as well. Chapter 16. Look forward to chapter 16, verse 3. Moab. 16.3. Give counsel, God is saying to his people. Grant justice. Make your shade like night at the heights of noon. Shelter the outcasts. So Moab has been ravaged. They are fleeing. Shelter the outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction is seized and he who tramples underfoot is vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Right right there, God is inviting the Moabites into his promise, a promise that was never just about Israel, but about the nations. And where are they to find shelter and shade but in the tent of David, one who will reign with justice and righteousness. We read all of these things, and if it sounds any bit familiar to you, it's because this is exactly how the reign of Emmanuel was described back in chapter 9. That's the son coming out of the tent of David that welcomes the nations to him. That baby born as the hope of the nations. So if, if you've come this morning and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian God is inviting you and saying, listen, resting in the things of this world will bring you destruction. I'm inviting you to come to find shelter and shade under my son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who died on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. And he rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death. And you can be delivered from your sins. The greatest thing you need deliverance from, Christ grants that to you. You don't work for it. You receive it with the empty hands of faith by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ. If you are not a believer, that's what it means to be welcomed into God's family. It's to repent of your sins and it's to trust in 
Christ. Only he saves. Christ has conquered sin and death. How do we know that? How are we to be confident of that? Because one day, look forward to 21.9. One day, will be cried, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all her carved images of her gods. He has shattered them to the ground. You know, throughout these chapters, Babylon, it refers to this great city. But Babylon refers to more than just a great city. It's, it's a cipher for all that stands in opposition to God, which is why, if you heard from Revelation 14.8 earlier in the service, it's why there John specifically applies this text to that great enemy, Satan himself. And what Isaiah is already helping us see is that if we look to God and trust in God, we can know that we can be delivered from our sins through His Son and through death because He has destroyed Satan himself. Friends, when life closes in upon you, when your circumstances become bleak, when your hope wanes, I want to put that question again. Where do you go for deliverance? Where do you look for salvation? Israel is looking to everyone and everything but the Lord. They thought they could be masters of their own fate. They thought they were in final control of their lives. And they're seeing that control was merely an illusion, finally. Which is why for 11 chapters, God will help them see to seek deliverance in anything other than God is to result in destruction. The Lord would strip them of everything but Him to reveal that He is all they need. So I ask you one last time, in the midst of your greatest dangers and in the midst of your greatest fears, what are you trusting in to deliver you? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray, and we know we have not plumbed the depths of these chapters, but we ask that what we have considered and what your Spirit has impressed upon us, we would take to heart, and we would consider carefully, and we would weigh in our own hearts where we are prone to rest in the things of the world and not in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.